So over the last 17, almost 18 years, we built up a diverse client list from PepsiCo, American Express, Honeywell, DirecTV, Fidelity, New York Life, MasterCard, Equinox Fitness Clubs, just to name a few, as well as a number of smaller, more entrepreneurial businesses, often private equity and venture-backed. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and my very special guest today is Matt Schwartz. Matt is the president at MJS Search. He's a top producing recruiter. He's been running his own firm for 17 years now. Prior to that, he's with Hydro and Struggles. Matt and I have been working together for a few months, and I begged him to come on the show and share the story of how he's built his successful search practice serving Fortune 500 companies in New York City, one of the most competitive markets in the world. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for doing this. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. So um, can we start with you telling the story about your recent uh, health issue? Because I think that's very relevant to what's happening right now. In particular, um, you know, I know that you recently closed a deal while you were literally in your sick bed. Could you tell that story, please? <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, I recently came down with uh, coronavirus. Um, it was uh, uh, it was probably one of the strangest illnesses I've ever ever had in my entire life. Um, pri- uh, I got it. I came down with it officially on March 18th. So. Fairly early on, although the government and uh, doctors were warning, you know, for a week or two before that we should all be a little bit more careful. Um, I was being careful, but was going in and out of New York City uh, the week before, and and probably uh, you know got it through my my travels. Um, you know, for anyone that is. Uh, uh, in denial or maybe doesn't know anybody that's, that's been infected by uh, coronavirus. It, it's very real. Um, I'm uh, based in Westchester County, New York, where it's somewhat of an epicenter. Uh, and we've had uh, uh, tens of thousands of cases and unfortunately uh, about a thousand deaths just within our county, not just, you know, New York state as a whole. Um, for me, it was you know, uh, uh, cold-like symptoms, uh, a little sore throat, stuffy nose. Um, then I started to get horrendous headaches, um, uh, fever. My fever never got that high, uh, no higher than 101.6, which typically wouldn't sideline uh, someone all that much, which I, I felt okay. Um, but then uh, uh, symptoms kept happening even seven, eight, nine days in, whether it was the, you know, prolonged fever, loss of taste and smell. Um, and then the breathing issues started. Uh, and fortunately I was able to get an inhaler, just a basic albuterol inhaler that, you know, calm my, uh, my coughing. And, uh, I was able to ride it out from there until the fever ended. And, uh, I got out of quarantine 14 days later. I was in full lockdown in my bedroom, didn't see my family for days at a time. Um, and uh, it's, I, I've been you know, doing okay ever, ever since, but uh, not fun. Um, I know a number of people who have had it. Everybody has experienced it slightly differently. And um, some have been almost asymptomatic, but actually have uh, 
uh, uh, after effects in terms of health issues that uh, are, are, are affecting them. And these are all young, you know, healthy people. So be careful. So Mark, to your point, yes, I closed a search in the middle of my coronavirus. Uh, about a weekend, we were making an offer to a very senior uh, candidate who's responsible for something called Unified Customer Profile at a, a large global financial services company. Significant comp um, in the high six figures uh, and uh, someone who is, you know, really going to make a, a massive difference within this organization. Um, we were, we checked references. I did a reference while I was sick. I, um, my associate did the other uh, couple references. We got to the point where we made the offer in conjunction with the client. And luckily there wasn't a lot of back and forth on the negotiation and uh, we were able to close the, the search smoothly uh, during this whole thing. A um, couple things to think about though, is that this candidate is based uh, out West, needs to relocate East. Um, obviously, well, not obviously, but you know, my client being a phenomenal employer uh, needed to be very cognizant of the fact that one, this person needed to move and think about moving in the middle of a pandemic. Um, they needed to really express their sensitivity and really show a lot of flexibility in regard to how are they going to onboard this person? Are they going to be able to allow them to start this really big, important job remotely? Um, uh, how are they going to think about relocation just a little bit differently? And uh, in this case, uh, this person's spouse needed assistance as well, um, moving uh, their job uh, after many, many years uh, with that employer. So lots of things to think about beyond just making a placement and completing the search, uh, especially in this, this crazy time. And I think showing the sensitivity and the flexibility was, was really number one. Wow. So Matt, setting the the issues surrounding the placement to one side for a second uh, and just addressing the, the health side of it. Like what, that sounds super scary. What was going through your mind? What were you feeling during the, you know, when you were feeling really miserable? Yeah. Um, two things. Uh, I'll get to how I was feeling in a second, but one, um, it was frustrating uh, a lot of days because I would feel pretty much okay. Um, I wasn't talking a lot, so I wasn't coughing a lot. It was when I was talking that the cough would start. Um, the thing that was most nagging was the fever. The fever would be gone the majority of the day and then spike at about six o'clock, you know, six to seven o'clock at night. So I'd, I'd be like, oh, I'm doing great. I'm fever free. And then all of a sudden the fever would come back. I even went two days where I was fever free and then it came back again. Oh. And so uh, super frustrating. The other thing was with all of these people, especially in the New York area, uh, going to the hospital on ventilators, <clears throat> um, I, I did not want to go that route, but you really have zero control over it. Uh, I, I made sure I did not read the news and I did not watch anything. Um, I did a little bit of 60 Minutes, which their stories have been all <laughs> coronavirus related for the last you know month or two. Um, 
but I don't know how, I think I maybe watched one episode during the time that I was sick. So I really tried to stay away from it as much as possible and not think about, you know, what was happening to, you know, my business uh, and, and millions of other businesses uh, around the country and around the world. Um, and I think that, uh, that calm of, of really ignoring everything uh, allowed me to focus on getting better um, and uh, not be panicked. Uh, I get that question a lot. People are like, were you ever in fear that you were, were going to go to the hospital? And, and luckily, no. Um, when I saw that the breathing issues were getting more severe, I got the inhaler and it made a massive, massive difference in terms of the inflammation. So um, that was great. I mean, you could barely, uh, I took Tylenol even sparingly because I wanted the fever to break on its own and, and just, you know, pass through me, but, you know, didn't, didn't do much, um, at all. So. Wow. I mean, I, that it, it, it sounds super scary and I'm so thankful that you, um, didn't have to go to the hospital. I think that the, what would scare me is the possibility of being separated from the people you love, right? Most when yeah. you, we have, we have a, we have a, uh, one of my best friends from college, they have a dear friend where they live in, in New Jersey who, uh, got sick about the same time as me, same age. Um, and, uh, he was, he was on the phone with his doctor, uh, he and his wife every single day. And on like, I think it was like the third or fourth day, the wife was like, listen, he's getting really, really bad. Uh, took him to the hospital. They dragged, they pulled him out of the car and she didn't see him for over a month. Uh, after that, um, luckily he lived and, uh, got out of the hospital and, uh, is now in a rehab facility, but, you know, not being able to be near your, your loved ones. I mean, I saw my, my family out the window in the backyard, uh, a couple days, but there were days, I think I went three or four days without seeing my daughter at all. Um, you know, she would text me, you know, from her room, you know, but it was oh so, God. so strange to be in the same house and then not see anyone, um, for, uh, for days and days and days. Wow. I mean, and how did you stay sane? Cause it sounds almost like, you know, you're in prison and in, in many ways, like you're in prison and in your room. Yeah. Um, what did you, I mean, I know you weren't watching the news cause you didn't want that negative input, but what else did you do to just occupy time and not go crazy? I saw so many shows and so many series that I, I can't even remember half <laughs> of them. Um, and uh, I slept a lot. Uh, but yeah. the challenge with sleeping a lot during the day is my sleep at night was horrendous. So right. uh, I tried to balance it out. And uh, when I felt good enough, I would just you know, walk around a little bit in my room and, uh, you know, I tried to shower every day and, uh, you know, just have some semblance of normalcy while I felt, you know, halfway decent. Um, you know, I've had illnesses that, you know, like just the flu or, you know, strep or something where it was a lot worse. I mean, much higher really? fevers, you know, high 102s, 103, you know, that is, that is awful. I mean, you're like delirious when you, you feel like that, but again, you get on antibiotics and within a couple of days you, you feel fine, you know, and, and this was not the case. It was just, you know, going, 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 and just getting more weirder and more severe as time went on. So, um, so 
you know, a lot of, a lot of TV. I don't ask me yeah. for any recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too much. <laughs> all right. Although I did like, I did wow. enjoy Shit's <laughs> Creek. I saw all five seasons of that. That was a lot. Of, that was <laughs> Gosh. So, and I know like you probably don't watch a lot of TV normally because you're a super fit guy. Your exercise regimen is unreal. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, so coming back to the fee then, I mean, you had to do, you know, I mean, you, you have to take care of business in spite of, um, you know, you being ill. Do you, are you comfortable sharing how much the, the fee was worth? Um, $185,000. Wow. Okay. So there's, that was pretty important to, uh, to get that completed. Yeah. Well, we're, we're a retained search firm. Um, and, uh, with, um, our clients in this case, uh, the full fee was billed within 120 days. And, uh, this search took a little bit longer based on the the complexity and the the limited number of people that, that really fit the role. So yeah, it was a big one. So typically I wouldn't mention the amount of the fee, but I didn't mention the client name. So I don't, or the candidate, so I don't have a problem with it. Okay. Terrific. Actually, could you just briefly explain the sorts of roles you fill in the industries you serve? Yeah. So, um, I started my career 25 years ago as a, a marketing recruiter, marketing and sales, uh, was with a boutique firm that, uh, was at the time the premier organization in the promotional marketing industry. There were a lot of what they call promotion agencies. Um, and, uh, they did everything from, uh, contests and sweepstakes and giveaways to, um, uh, uh, sampling opportunities, et cetera. So it was, um, that, that was what we did early, what I did early on. And, uh, I, uh, quickly adapted to be the, uh, they called me the king of the fortune 6,000. So any company that you had never heard of that had a, a highly conceptual role, um, where you really had to tell the client's story and, and get people excited about it. Um, that's, that's what I got involved in. So it could be everything from bus wrap advertising to movie theater, um, marketing and promotional experiences to in-store sampling and event activity. Um, I even did a head of sponsorship for the, um, uh, the, the marketing and licensing arm of the bowling industry. (laughs) And, and then on top of that, at the time we did a lot of transitioning of classically trained package goods executives to non-traditional businesses. So, uh, Procter and Gamble to banking or automotive and PepsiCo and general mills and, you know, um, uh, companies like that to, again, non-traditional businesses. So we did a lot of that kind of work. Um, in 99, got recruited to Hydric, where I was a principal in the global consumer practice. And because I'd worked with a functionally focused firm, I was able to work in all areas of the consumer practice from consumer packaged goods uh, media, entertainment, and sports, retail, fashion, luxury goods, and then advertising, marketing, communications, and marketing services activity. And that was a, a phenomenal uh, experience because I, I was a bit of a utility player and uh, could keep myself very busy, especially because I was there from 99 to the end of 2002, which was a, a huge dip 
in the industry and, and thousands, over a thousand people were laid off at, at Hydric alone. And uh, some of my friends that were massive billers at other firms couldn't get any work at all. So uh, very, very fortunate there. And then at the end of 02, decided to start my own firm. Um, at the time, uh, it, the world had just blown up, as we know. <laughs> it was a huge meltdown, dot-com, yeah. uh, uh, the first dot-com boom. And all of these companies that built these brands, uh, uh, epic brands, you know, just disappeared overnight. You know, they spent all their money on brand advertising and sock puppets and all sorts of stuff. Those companies all disappeared. Uh, the ones that survived were really focused on what we were calling at the time, and I guess it's still called, you know, measurable marketing. Now it's a no-brainer. Every All marketing should be measure, measurable. But that was my stake in the ground to kind of position the company to be relevant. You know, anybody could say they do marketing work, but the whole measurable marketing activity and showing a deep understanding of direct and database marketing was, was really key and a little bit of email back then as well. Um, uh, the problem was <laughs> I had no clients. Um, I had relationships, but I had no clients. It wasn't like I was taking clients from Hydric and bringing them over. I thought some um, some opportunities were going to be gifted to me that were the crumbs for them, you know, below uh, uh, 85, $75,000, $85,000 fee. And I was more than happy to take them. But uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen immediately. Later on, I ended up getting lots of referrals from them, um, but didn't happen immediately. So I really had to go and, and build one logo at a time um, and figure out what my story and positioning is, which is really to get to your overall question. Um, so what I did is I, I literally just built it, you know, again, one logo at a time, one search at a time and let those searches tell the story. I had to stick to what I knew, which was a lot of this measurable marketing activity. But once we got inside of clients, they would ask us, Hey, have you ever done something like this or something like that? And we would build up a much larger roster of, of searches to be able to continue on with the story. So, um, the, the, the launching point was really PepsiCo. Um, they were our largest client for eight years. We started out doing a lot of traditional corporate communications work, um, uh, some marketing work, uh, uh, innovation, uh, category management, that sort of thing. But then um, in 2008, they said, hey, this social media thing is becoming real. Um, you've done some of these other unique searches for us. Um, could you help us find a head of global social media? Um, at the time, companies didn't really have, didn't have heads of social media. I mean, it didn't really exist. And even they knew that social media was going to become a part of everybody's role within the company, not just, it's not, wasn't clearly a marketing function. It was a customer service function. It was a employee communications function. It was, uh, 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 it was advertising and promotion was the lowest on the list because no one wants to be sold to through social media. You know, they want to have a conversation with their, their, um, their customers and, and really let them help shape the brand and, and drive it forward. So we, we did that search. And then that led to the head of global digital marketing, uh, strategy. Um, and, uh, the, the, from there, 
they came to us and said, okay, we want you to fill a series of roles that have never existed before. And we don't even know if this person exists out there in the marketplace. <laughs> what it was, was they had, in, they had just bought back their bottlers and inherited vending fountain and cooler equipment. So they said, hey, we're not in the vending machine business, we're in the marketing business. Um, what if we could take the, the, this equipment, again, vending machines, coolers and convenience stores and fountain equipment that you would find at like a, a quick serve or um, quick serve restaurant and turn it into what we want to call retailtainment. So let's take a vending machine and turn it into a giant touchscreen with facial recognition, the ability to play a video game or sing karaoke with Beyonce before you buy your drink, uh, pay with your smartphone while having it all connected to the internet so you can collect data to uh, optimize manufacturing, supply chain, and maintenance capabilities. So find us engineers with MBAs who have created game-changing products or services that have never existed before that can come in and reinvent our vending fountain and cooler equipment. So find us basically someone from a technology company that's willing to come to a packaged goods company and, and make a, a measurable difference for the future. Wow, that's a tall order. Tall order. So the first person we ended up placing was one of the creators of Xbox Connect from Microsoft. So wow. he basically create, you know, and that was uh, uh, the person is the, you know, the controller, you know, through their movement. Um, and ultimately, I believe they put Xbox like sensors into the, the uh, vending machines. You know, so they could identify, was it a, a man, a woman, a child interacting with the machine? And how is that going to dictate what kind of communication is going on in front of them in terms of this interactive experience? Um, the second person was someone who came from the Microsoft Ford Sync relationship, where it was when people were first talking to their cars uh, back about nine, 10 years ago. Um, so again, you know, another really interesting person. And then we also uh, placed um, the head of big data uh, for the whole project. How are they going to build the, the data stack and figure out um, what data they were going to collect, how they were going to collect it, but more importantly, how are they going to disseminate that data across the enterprise to make real, real-time business decisions uh, to really optimize things moving forward. So at that point, manufacturing knows exactly what to produce based on the volume levels that are coming out of this equipment. Um, delivery drivers know exactly what to load up on their carts based on what equipment is in that particular building and what's selling uh, uh, greater um, to make sure that there's limited out of stock and they can maximize sales volume. So wow. we took that story of the Pepsi equipment and, and we're able to use that to showcase, hey, listen, we are great at identifying people from alternative industries who are the best of the best of what they do and bringing this mix of skills to diverse organizations, whether it's financial services, insurance, um, aerospace and defense, uh, uh, B2B manufacturing, um, and, and, and that's what we've done. So over the last 
uh, 17, almost 18 years, we built up a diverse client list from uh, PepsiCo, American Express, Honeywell, DirecTV, Fidelity, New York Life, MasterCard, Equinox Fitness Clubs, um, just to name a few, uh, as well as a number of smaller, more entrepreneurial businesses, often private equity and venture backed. Wow, that's cool. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I want to encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Matt, I totally get how once you're you've done a successful search for a business, they're you know, thrilled with the people that you were able to find for them on very difficult searches. I see how that would lead then to like repeat business and other opportunities. But I guess my big question is, how does a very small boutique firm win executive search, retained executive search business from Fortune 500 companies when presumably you're pitching against either an incumbent or against other suppliers who are perhaps like the, the sort of top 10 headhunting firms in the world, uh, you know, the names that everyone's familiar with, and you're MJS, right? So how, how are you able to, first of all, get in the door in the first place, and secondly, convince them that they should take a chance on you instead of go with, you know, a firm they've already heard of? Yeah. So, um, so typically we are up against, uh, one other firm. Um, and typically it's a large one. So our clients that we have master, uh, agreements with, they, um, will off, yeah, they'll, they'll bring in a big firm and a small firm and let the hiring manager make the decision. Um, we are fortunate that, you know, one, I was trained I got a significant amount of training at Hydric. So um, I'm able to say, hey, listen, you're getting Hydric quality work from a boutique. We're, we're not any cheaper. So um, maybe, yeah, we're, we're really not any cheaper. So that's not really what the benefit they're getting. They're getting, um, at the end of the day, it's up to them to have a, a comfort uh, in terms of who they feel most comfortable with. So I, you know, again, I can't speak negatively about any specific people within, you know, my competitors, but at the end of the day, 
um, I like to call it removing the black box. Um, you know, we're all going to walk in there. We're going to be in our, our, our nicest suits. We're going to look good. We can speak in full sentences, but you know, what, what is it about our presentation that's going to get them to feel comfortable? Um, I don't treat a, uh, a sales, uh, conversation as a sales conversation. I, I treat it as a, a consultative meeting. I, I come in prepared with, with great questions, but not great questions like I'm picking up the search right at this moment or assuming anything, but really getting into their head and getting a deeper understanding of, of what's most important. Um, I try and, you know, we get the spec ahead of time. I try and pull out the top three to six key criteria. Um, I try and understand, you know, what, what are the types of organizations they'd like to see this person come from. But more importantly, I try and come prepared with a, a handful of potential uh, profiles that would give the client comfort level that, that we understand the search and, and really you know, know what's going on. So maybe I walk in the room with 10 profiles, but by being a, a great les- listener and really paying attention and, and being insightful, um, I may show them two out of the 10. And, you know, once they, they get a sense, and again, that's not the only thing, but once they get a sense of, wow, these guys really get it and, and get a comfort level there and um, we can, you know, talk about other, you know, potential similar situations or more importantly, have a calling card of a number of, of, of senior level uh, game changing placements within their organization they basically say, hey, you know our organization, you know our culture, you clearly have a good grasp of the, the, the functional um, experience we're looking for, um, and uh, you know, we win more than we lose. So uh, I think it's a, maybe it's a little bit of confidence, um, but also uh, you know, experience within that company. I mean, with a few of our clients, we're to the point where they, may, they call us with opportunities and they know how difficult they may be. They know how difficult the hiring manager may be and actually give us a choice if we even want to uh, uh, audition <laughs> for the search and you know, have that meeting because they want to make sure we can protect our, our longstanding you know, reputation within those organizations. And that's, uh, you know, we appreciate that so much. That's, that's how much partnership we have with uh, some of our best clients. Wow, that is great. Um, if I can follow up on, on a couple of things you mentioned, which, which caught my attention. One was you mentioned hiring managers, and I just wondered to what extent you're, you get access to hiring managers as opposed to you're kind of um, dealing with talent acquisition or, or HR and how you navigate that. Because one of the challenges that I'm hearing from my clients with, when dealing with large companies, in fact, some of my clients have, st- have stopped going after big clients and they're focusing on smaller ones where they can still deal directly with the C-level, the, the decision makers, because they're finding that um, there's more and more layers, buffers between them and the client that they have to navigate, which can be quite a frustrating experience. And how how have you dealt with that? Yeah. So um, most of our large global clients have a, uh, uh, an intermediary in between, and that's 
a talent uh, acquisition or talent management leader internally. They are the ones that are responsible for bringing in the, the firms that they think could be the best fit for this potential client. And then they make the decision together. So, um, and I'm okay with that. But with that said, um, the client, the hiring manager is very involved. I mean, we have weekly calls. We go through the status of the searches. We really talk about candidates. And one thing I have to say about my talent acquisition partners, many of them are unbelievable recruiters in their own right. I mean, they are really, really strong and great at what they do. But when it comes to some of these more technical roles, they just say, you know what? It's, it's not in my wheelhouse. So I need to hire a search firm to manage. Um, and two, sometimes we have to reach out to four to 600 candidates to find, you know, four to six qualified and interest, uh, yeah, four to six qualified interest, qualified and interested people for the role. And when they've got 20, 30, you know, requisitions on their desk, they just don't have the bandwidth to be able to focus, even if they could uh, do the search themselves. So, um, so that, you know, that, that's, that's where they really need us to be able to dive deep, to spend a lot of time way beyond what they would have internally. Otherwise these searches would go on forever. Um, you know, these are, these are searches that are in high demand, low supply, and um, the people are, are very sophisticated and you, you don't get that many chances to attract them to these opportunities. Interesting. So it sounds like you actually have a very healthy relationship with your town acquisition partners. Um, how do you negotiate that uh, relationship to ensure that, I mean, it sounds like sometimes they're actually bringing you into the company, introducing you to the hiring manager, then the hiring manager decides, do we want to work with Match Sports or, or whatever? So that's, that's positive. Yep. But do you find you have to negotiate the sort of rules of engagement and insist that, you know, you have these hiring manager meetings? Because uh, sometimes I find that internal recruiters want to be the point of contact and the conduit of information in both directions? No, not at this level. Okay. Um, the level we're working at, these are very, uh, there may be uh, L minus two, they call it, you know, the, the, the senior most person within the firm. I mean, they may be yeah. two people away, you right. know, um, okay. the pr people we're hiring, you know, yes. so it's, um, they, they have to be involved. If, if they're not involved, they're not transactional roles at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. So there's so many nuances in terms of not just the skill set, uh, the technical expertise, but also the leadership qualities that the only way to really experience it is one to have a, an intermediary that you trust to be able to evaluate that. And then two, um, that hiring manager needs to be highly engaged because they're getting, you know, daily or weekly calls from the, the president or CEO saying, Hey, this, this 
this, this role needs to get filled. You know, what's the status, what's the status, what's the status. And they need to be actively involved in that process. So again, I don't, I don't need to ask for weekly calls. The only thing I need to do is, is just manage their expectations on when those weekly calls can start officially. And, um, typically, uh, you know, week one is hardcore reach out, uh, research and reach out. Um, week two, continue research, reach out, but we start interviewing in that week two. Um, and uh, by week three, we're presenting real uh, qualified and interested candidates. I mean, we're not presenting the, the ultimate shortlist or anything, but we're, we're well on our way and, and are hungry to make that call. Within those first two weeks, though, doesn't mean we go dark from the client. Often questions come up, we need to tweak certain things. We want to clarify certain things that maybe didn't come out um, or a question maybe we didn't anticipate. And the, the client's great. You know, they, they, they want to hear from us. We let them know they're going to hear from us. Uh, most of the time, it's just a quick email, just getting a, a response from them. But, um, you know, they, they need in a retained search relationship, we're billing the first third up front you know, the second, third after 30 days. So say they paid us a large chunk of money and then 30 days later, we're ready to invoice them again and they haven't seen the kind of activity that meets their expectations. That's not a great place to be in. Luckily, it's (laughs) known across me and my team that we're going to meet those deadlines. And when that 30th day comes, there's no questions asked that, you know, they know we're, we're on it. You know, we, we, we've got lots of activity. We're already showing some good promise and um, no, no questions about paying that, that second invoice when they're ready to pay it. Matt, um, I get how once you're in front of the decision makers, be it the, you know, head of talent acquisition or the, or the senior hiring authority, you know, you're, going to be able to impress them. You can tell them the stories of the brands you've worked with, the searches you've, you've completed, you know, and how you're, you've got a very creative approach to dealing with um, difficult searches, which, uh, you know, and, and the people you're placing are in marketing roles where they make a measurable difference. I guess my question is, how do you get your foot in the door in the first place? Because, you know, with a, a firm, they've never heard of MJS and, um, you know, what, what's how, like, I'm thinking back now you have kind of a, a great portfolio of clients, but thinking back to when you first started out, like, how did you go about developing your new business? Yeah. Um, it was a lot of referrals, um, mm-hmm. clients that, well, first of all, it started with, um, some people that I used to work with that went from search firm to in-house and they were able to make some strategic introductions to get us into like Pepsi, for example. Um, So that was that. Then our Pepsi client went to another company, Ah. took us along. Um, Our another, uh, and uh, our Pepsi client went to Pitney Bowes and then another Pitney Bowes client went to MasterCard and <laughs> um, another, uh, I get another search firm that specialized in a whole different function of our, than us referred us to one of her uh, talent leaders that she had a relationship with. And that person went from New York life to fidelity to Marsh McLennan companies. I mean, it's just incredible 
you know, uh, that, you know, all this movement would spur, you know, new, new relationships. So, you know, between other recruiters and different functions and uh, talent management people moving from one company to another, that's definitely been our best source of leads over the year years. Um, you know, this, the part that I've struggled with and some of the things that you and I have worked with is, is just the general marketing aspect, you know, cold calling doesn't work. Um, you know, uh, people are excited to hear the, the MJS story when they hear it, but got to get in front of them first. And, uh, so that's, that's a, that's a challenge. So I like to say good work gets good work. And between, clients moving companies and candidates moving companies, um, you know, that that's usually where the, uh, the referrals come from. Awesome. That makes total sense. Well, look, Matt, thank you so much for sharing your stories and your, um, you know, your expertise, your, your, um, your journey with us. Can I ask one final question? And that is looking back over, you know, your 25 year career, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? Like if you could go back in time when you're first starting your business, you know, what would you, what have, what's been one learning that you, you know, uh, you've taken away from that? <sighs> hmm. Um, let's see here. Let me, maybe uh, I asked the question in a, in a convoluted way. I guess the simplest way to ask the question is, what has been the biggest mistake that you have made that you, you know, turned out to be a great learning opportunity? Yeah. Um, going after volume over quality. Mm. Um, volume for volume's sake was not great. The, the second I dug my heels in, focused on higher level, higher quality searches, um, things just changed dramatically. So would not that I wouldn't like to do 20 plus searches a year, but I would rather do 20 searches a year uh, at a higher fee level than a lower fee level because the, the work is the same, if not greater, at some of these lower fee level searches. Not to mention the ability to, uh, or the, uh, um, the team capability of what it took to execute a lot more of this work and uh, uh, higher volume work ended up you know, really hurting the overall profitability of the company. So fewer searches at a higher level um, was definitely the thing that, that changed the business and, you know, took us into a, a whole nother realm. So now, uh, it took me years to get my first, you know, six figure fee. And now it seems like, well, now it doesn't seem like a majority of them are, you know, well over uh, six figures and, uh, that that's phenomenal. So, um, yeah leaving that behind and, and, and feeling, you know, having the confidence that we could continue to move up market and be able to showcase that work um, has really been a massive game changer for us. I'm so glad I asked you that last question because that was phenomenal. And I agree hundred percent. It's really fascinating how the lower level roles take as much, you know, effort and sometimes more, um, but for, for less reward. But what I'm interested in is that 
pivot point where you made that shift and, and where you decided actually, do you know what? I'm going to, I'm not going to accept business below this amount. I mean, weren't you afraid? Like, well, what if it doesn't work and I've just turned down opportunities, you know, um, what, what gave you the confidence to aim higher with the level? So, so first of all, you know, if someone's starting a, a search firm or are trying to get a hold of, you know, what we're talking about in terms of, Hey, but I need the work. I need the work. I need the work type of thing. Um, you got to start somewhere, right? You, you got to start and, and have a minimum in which you're going to, you know, kind of draw the line in the sand. So for some people, it could be $35,000 fees for others. It's 50, you know, for me, it's 75. And, you know, that's really, uh, you know, that that's worked for us. Right. So, um, but, you know, being able to have that confidence and know that that's what you're going to focus on is, is, is really key. And, um, you know, once you're able to do that, you know, one mentally, you're going to, you know, get there. But second of all, you, you'd be surprised how many clients will say, uh, you know, you know what, we want to work with you. We'll, we'll pay, you know, 50, you know, if, if we have, you know, we'll pay 50, we, we get it, you know, so um, you can actually get people to maybe pay you more than what you're used to. Um, if you, uh, you know, are confident and can, you know, really focus on that, that number. Awesome. All right, Matt. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. I am, I'm thrilled and grateful that you're, you're healthy again. And, uh, so, so thanks so much. And, and for our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Um, if you like this episode, then please give us a, a review in Google podcasts or sorry, Apple podcasts, uh, and, or Spotify. And the best way you can support this show, if you want me to continue, you know, putting this stuff out there, uh, for the benefit of our industry, then please do subscribe. And that way you'll get every new episode directly to your phone each week. So, uh, so thanks for tuning in, Matt, until we meet again, have a great uh, rest of your day. Thank you, Mark.